Welcome to episode 124 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This week, my featured guest is Suzanne Russo, Chief Executive Officer at Pecan Street, a not-for-profit organization accelerating innovations in climate and conservation solutions. Suzanne also serves on the board of directors of the Texas Energy Poverty Research Institute, TEPRI, is a member of the Forbes Technology Council, and also serves on the board of advisors for Clean Texas. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. Prior to joining Pecan Street in 2010, Suzanne was Director of Sustainability Initiatives for New York City's Department of Housing Preservation and Development. Suzanne holds a master's degree in community and regional planning from the University of Texas at Austin. She has worked on sustainability community development in Africa, China, India, and many parts of the United States. Welcome to the Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm here with Suzanne Russo, Chief Executive Officer at Pecan Street. Suzanne, welcome to the Climate Champions. Thank you for having me, Lee. I'm really excited to be here. It seems like it's been my entire climate journey. Pecan Street has been there. Wow. I really appreciate hearing that because you've been just really an icon in our work and obviously one of our We'll probably get into this more later, but one of our really early supporters and champions, and also you helped us really figure out what would be useful for this team to do over the longer run. And for us, we're a staff of 12. So I think we often struggle to see if we're really having impact in the world and on leaders like you. Well, you definitely had an impact on me. You had real people using smart grid, whereas we had theories about smart grid. I mean, we were building it, but we didn't know how people would react. And we really look to your data to help us figure out what to really do. Thank you. It's wonderful to hear that our approach is useful, particularly in that utility context. You were working with San Diego Gas and Electric when we were getting started. And that that is what we try to accomplish is bringing people into the equation, bringing homes into the equation as we think about solving these big problems and evolving our large systems. We have to have input from households so that it works, right? For a number of reasons, and that's hard to do. So we've been trying to figure out what is that model. When we started around energy with you, and now we're in water and transportation and agriculture, it's been a fun journey. We tried to get Pecan Street started in San Diego, and we found some builders that were willing to do some things, but nothing like what you did. So congratulations. Thanks. Thanks. It's definitely a a team effort. What was your motivating moment with regards to climate change? Gosh, this was probably 20 years ago now. You know, an undergrad heading into graduate school. My undergrad was around conservation biology, and I was getting a master's in international natural resource management. And really my passion growing up and in my early formative years was around protecting and ensuring we have wildness, you know, into the future as development expands all around the world. 
how do we value wild places and create space for other species to cohabitate this planet in a way that's not punitive to poor communities and poorer countries? That was always a question that really intrigued me. But as I was working on that and getting you know, more entrenched in that domain, climate change was emerging as this huge global issue that researchers and policymakers were starting to understand, or at least to know we need to understand how is our climate going to change over the next 20, 40, 50 years? And how is this going to impact things like species health, ecosystem health, migration patterns, national resiliency, natural resource availability, water access? I feel like everywhere I turned in my research, this was a huge question that was just about to blow up every problem we were already looking at. And so I decided I wanted to go and try to work in climate change, but to bring this sort of systems of systems approach to looking at it along with communities. So, you know, as scientists, we can get really fixated on and kind of stuck in looking at our climate models, at understanding the data, at projections and at policy and economics. But unless we're dealing with sort of a simple solution, you know, you have to bring the human equation into it to really solve a problem. And that seemed like something that wasn't happening yet. So um, that was how climate change became a thing that I decided to throw myself at and also the way in which I felt that I wanted to do that and can make a difference. And what are your personal drivers now? What keeps you going? My daughter keeps me going a lot because it can be a grind and it feels, you know, like there's more bad news and good news about climate change every day. And also just the effectiveness of this approach that we're taking, where we are really trying to center big environmental solutions and big systems development around people you know, around families and communities and how do we take this opportunity for massive change in our world and use it not just to decarbonize the energy system, but to create a more affordable energy system that creates more opportunities for people and for communities. And I think we're doing that. We're seeing the fruits of that labor. So that keeps us going a lot too. Now you have accumulated a lot of data because you work with real people using technology that can help mitigate climate change. I imagine you use that data to help convince people that there is a changing climate and that there are things we can do about it. Yeah, that, so that's a good question. And that's actually a fun research project we're looking at right now. We have got about 11 years of data, very granular data on how people use energy in their homes. And we've tried to preference bringing households into our research network that have solar or electric vehicles so we can also understand as these technologies that we're really trying to push at a national and a global level, as they become more prevalent into households and into communities, what are the impacts of that? How can we optimize those investments? Things of that nature. So we now have over 10 years of data on about a thousand homes in our research network. Most of those are here in Austin, but we have a few hundred in other communities around the country. And one of the questions we're looking at is over that 10 years, can we see a correlation between climate change and energy use in homes. Can we actually look back and now see climate change and how that's impacting homes from an energy and a technology perspective? And what's been really interesting about that, we're still in the process of doing that research. We'll probably be publishing that in the next couple of months, but there's not this kind of linear growth that I think we all sort of envision when we talk about the world is gonna get you know 1.5 degrees Celsius warmer. We're one degree there already, maybe we're heading to three. In my mind, and in a lot of people's minds, I think we just think of that as sort of the steady rise in temperature and a steady correlated rise in energy use. 
But really, the way climate change is manifested in our research network, at least, particularly over the past five years, is just in a lot more extreme weather. And so it's not really planning for this incremental growth as temperatures incrementally rise. It's planning for a lot more growth, both in heating and cooling, to deal with these extreme highs and extreme lows in weather patterns. And the way that that impacts households from an economic perspective, from a technology perspective, we're still unpacking that. But the impact on the grid system and how we need to think about really planning for climate change, that one kind of blew my mind. I don't want to use the term death cycle because it means a lot of things to a lot of people. But the more we want to use more energy to deal with more extreme weather, the more we cause more extreme weather and need to use more energy. In England right now, that's what they're talking about. They want to stop some of the efforts they're doing in climate change mitigation to focus on lowering bills. I don't know. It just seems like a cycle that's not very good. Yes, that is a big issue that we're seeing as well. But I don't see that as a negative. I guess I just always see that as an inevitable because as societies evolve, we use more energy, right? We become more energy intensive. That is inevitable. And it's helping to accelerate where's that energy coming from? Because we do have to build new generation capacity in almost every place in the country and in the world. And so as we're building that new big capacity, it's a chance to phase out what is legacy, you know, to really pay off our technology debt in the energy sector and to get more solar, to get more storage, to get more wind on the grid faster, because we have these bulk purchases essentially that we need to make in creating more capacity. And in Texas, for example, over the last quarter, a report just came out in Utility Dive that Texas installed 60% of the nation's energy storage in the last quarter of 2022, wherever we are. You know, and that's huge. Texas is a conservative state. Our government is not friendly to clean energy and that we're putting on pretty massive amounts of energy storage and wind energy and solar here in a place where politically that's not appealing. I think it shows that from kind of a technology and a systems perspective, we are really heading in the right direction. We need to get there faster, but I think we're on the right track. Texas has a lot to lose if the weather changes based on where it is right now. Yeah. And uh, yeah, our our winter superstorm was a wake up call to a lot of us. It's become, you know, a political blowhorn. But I think the people who really are in charge of our energy system and our energy advocates and our companies here, the ones that really are making change, that event's being taken seriously and thinking about what does resiliency mean? What does capacity mean? Energy is critical for economic development. Let's start getting this right. You already talked about it a little bit, but can you talk more about Pecan Street and yourself and what you do specifically to help mitigate climate change? Pecan Street is a nonprofit organization. We're a 501c3, so we don't do any lobbying. And we work to accelerate the cycle of innovation for climate solutions. And that's a really broad mandate, but we achieve it with a very specific model, which is that we partner with industry leaders, with innovative startups, and with universities to figure out what are the gaps in information, the gaps in data that are preventing you from understanding a problem and solving it, or from proving out solutions more quickly and getting them scaled up more quickly. And we will then go out and help collect that data. And that's where our community partnerships come in, is that we primarily work in the residential sector, although we're starting to do more around public transportation and agriculture. The data that's needed is usually just data on how are we living? How do we use energy in homes? How do we use energy on farms? 
How do we manage our farmland? How do we think about water? What are the kinds of investments we want to make as families into technology, into homes, into the kind of car that we want to have? So we will go out and collect that data. And because we're a nonprofit organization, we can bypass a lot of the regulations that tend to prevent utilities from being able to go into homes in that same way and get that kind of customer side of the meter data. We install sensors. We try to find them available in the marketplace where we can't find them. We have an incredible team that invents them that gives us really granular, very accurate measurements around these decisions in homes and around these behavioral patterns, particularly with electricity use. And then we also do a lot of surveys and focus groups with the homes that will sign up to let us instrument them to get this data, to understand what is that qualitative perspective. And then we can marry that with the hard data, the quantitative data that we get to create these really unique, powerful data sets. That data, it's now the world's largest research database on energy and water use. It's available to university researchers around the world. We work with corporations who are interested in using the data for technology development. It's produced a bunch of academic papers as well as a lot of new technologies. Some we can talk about, most we can't. But we also do a lot of work here at Pecan Street in our lab with our team as well on solutions development, both on the hardware and the software side. So that as we see opportunities that aren't being met by a company yet or by a different kind of solutions provider, we'll try to really quickly get some funding to go out and prove is this idea that we have one that's worth carrying out to a broader sector, giving to a company to try to develop. I'm here in our lab now in Austin, where we do a lot of our prototype development. Can you talk about how you got where you are? How did you get to be the leader of Pecan Street? So after graduate school, when I had my kind of climate change aha moment, I decided I needed to move to a different graduate program. I looked around extensively and there, you know, at that time wasn't a climate change focus in our universities. There wasn't a degree I could go and get to study this. So I decided the best thing would be community and regional planning. The University of Texas at Austin, where I'm from, has a great program. So I moved into that. And from there, I was able to just learn a lot of skills about how do you design and manage communities? You know, everything from geographic information system software to how do you write an effective policy memo and how do you do public policy financing and I was able to go to New York City after graduate school and work as a director of sustainability for New York City's Department of Housing, Preservation and Development, which is the affordable housing department. And that was a great experience. And that let me continue to marry a lot of the work that I had been doing internationally around these community-based natural resource management programs with this more, you know, American, very, obviously very urban, very big scale model around affordable housing and affordable communities. So what does that look like when we start centering around homes and families and affordability to then bring in sustainability as the ultimate goal? How do we design housing in places that are net zero carbon emissions, ideally that are producing clean energy, that provide a healthy place for people to live that are close to healthy food, that are close to green spaces and wildness. And that was such a wonderful opportunity to be able to do that model on this big scale. And what I learned working for Bloomberg, because he's such a numbers guy, is that numbers and data are critical for developing effective solutions, but also for convincing people of the problems that exist and the roots of them and convincing them of effective ways to solve them. And that putting money behind those solutions is going to work. An example of that is, as I was doing this work 
around sustainability in New York City and trying to figure out what our policy is going to be. And then how do we pay for them and what are going to be the barriers to implementation? At the same time, we were having the big foreclosure crisis in New York. And so a lot of people were losing their homes, even affordable homes were no longer affordable. And so I was digging into some of the roots of that and saw that about 15% of those households were making a choice between their energy bill and their mortgage. And they ended up going into foreclosure because you can't live without power. And if we can get energy bills more affordable, if we can tackle energy efficiency and housing, we can help make living more affordable. So I went out and worked with some researchers and we got a bunch of great data on that. And that helped the city decide to invest in energy efficiency and affordable housing rather than other places they could have put that money. So that got me sparked on data and on seeing we need a lot more data to solve these complex problems. And at the same time as I was kind of moving into implementation phase in New York City, Austin as a city was looking at how can we take what's really unique about the city with our very progressive public utility, our very tech-heavy economy, our really involved community and become a living laboratory for smart grid, for this new idea that was emerging around smart cities and smart grid. And they decided to start a separate 501c3 that could really carry out that mission and that would be its purpose. So I decided to come back here and join the team as it was getting started. And it was led, founded and led for a few years by one of the city council members that was instrumental in creating this vision, Brewster McCracken, and he did a wonderful job. And then Brewster was ready to move on to some other new things. And I still felt like this model has a lot of different ways that we can grow and be really impactful in the world. So I was able to step in as the CEO and take us from just looking at residential energy to then water and transportation and now agriculture. Absolutely. There's so much room for growth because this problem is only getting worse and data is how we can understand it and understand what to do about it. I know a lot of people are not into the numbers, not into the data, but ultimately that's how you solve these problems, at least technically. Yep, absolutely. I mean, otherwise we're just taking guesses and we don't have time, right? We don't have time for that. Can you talk about setbacks that you've had along the way? Yeah, we've had a number of setbacks. You know, when you're doing innovative research, early stage research, failure and setbacks are just part of the game. And that's part of how our team has actually continued to move forward is we've really cultivated a mindset of quick to fail, but also quick to succeed, right? If we're failing all the time, we know we're doing something wrong. So we kind of constantly evaluate where are we at and really trying to move the needle on these big issues. But some of the bigger setbacks that we've had have really occurred over the past handful of years. Having the Trump administration come into place in the federal government really stalled a lot of that funding that we as an organization, but a lot of universities as well rely on for early stage research. So research into the fundamentals of what will be our new economies, our new sectors, our new technologies, the fundamentals of what are going to be the new emerging areas of research and discovery. That funding went away for a few years. We were lucky that we were able to fill those gaps as an organization with a lot more foundation support and corporate partnerships. And that actually helped us think a bit more outside the box of early stage research and into really fully packaged solutions development. And how do we think about communities in the context, not only of defining problems and scoping out what a solution should look like, but then when you get to, we've got things that are ready to roll in communities, what are the barriers there? 
that's been a fun space for us to move into and where there's a lot of richness now, particularly. And then the second big setback for us was the pandemic, which is not a surprise, obviously a huge issue for the world and for organizations to figure out how to deal with individually. We were really lucky that we didn't lose any of our team members during the pandemic to the virus itself or just to wanting to move on and do something else with their life. And that was also a good learning opportunity for us to be able to diversify our staff so that we're not just all Austin-based and we can work around the country now, which helps us not only have, I think, a richness within our team and with different ideas and perspectives, but also richness within our volunteer community and the households that are in our network now. We've, we've grown a lot on the coast over the past couple of years with the homes that are in our network and are providing data, but also in remembering the value of community, because I think that was something personally we all had more intensity around as we were in our homes a lot more and relying more on our neighbors for social support and medical support. We as an organization also were able to take that time to remember the value of each other as a team and of our participants as our community. That's beautiful. Can you talk about the successes that you're most proud of? Yeah. Oh, that's a big one. Cause I'm just really proud of everything that we do at Pecan Street because we have such a wonderful team on staff and such an incredible community of volunteers that I'm always amazed at what they put up with from us, with just letting us put these sensors into their home that collects second by second data on how they're using energy and how they're using water. And they fill out surveys for us on a regular basis about their family. But connected technology in a class of, of technologies and devices, this whole internet of things, it really is still a pretty tricky space to be in. And we rely on that for our data and for the foundations of what we do. And so we have things all the time, like our sensors go offline. We've got to ping our volunteers on a fairly regular basis to reset their router, reset their e-gauge device. Did you update your Wi-Fi password? Can you share that with us? We have a new study where we want to go and turn your AC on and off and see if it bothers you or your smart dishwasher. And, you know, people always say yes. And they've been doing this with us for years and years and years now. So really everything we produce is an outcome of that manifestation of personal commitment to wanting to solve climate change. And they're doing that in a way that's not visible. It's not like you get that dopamine response of driving your electric car around, you know, and feeling really good about that. It's this invisible thing and it's a hassle and they do it. But some of the things I'm really proud of are just that we have had the foresight, I think, to know that data is critical and that this is a big gap around communities and homes. And so now that there are more opportunities on the data science side and the solutions development side with AI evolving, with consumer technology evolving, with big companies like Apple and Google trying to move into the energy and the connected home space. We have 10 years of data ready to go, ready to build solutions off of, and that's proving really impactful. So I'm proud of the team for that foresight. And there were a number of years where we couldn't get funding to cover the cost of keeping that data. But, you know, we made some sacrifices as a team, not taking raises some years or taking salary cuts some years so that we could preserve everything that we've done and everything that we're trying to do. So I'm really proud of the team's commitment and the way that that data is now proving really useful and how we're accelerating pretty quickly into other domains where things like smart agriculture and figuring out, can we get data to prove this theory that has a lot of scientific robustness behind it, but it's pretty much all model-based so far, but this theory that soils can sequester a lot more carbon 
and can be a big source of carbon drawdown from the atmosphere for us. So right now we're trying to tackle that question, but again, wrapping it around more of our underserved farmers, BIPOC communities, smaller farmers and ranchers, and figuring out what are the solutions there? What, what data are they willing to share? What's the comfort level? And then how can we create tools that enable different decision-making on farms once we have that data? When you look at the future 10, 20, 30 years out, how do you think the human race is going to fare in the face of climate change? I kind of hate answering this question <laughs> because we're not doing a good job yet, really anywhere in the world of addressing climate change. There's remains a huge disconnect between policymakers in a lot of places and scientists. And when we have that kind of disconnect, how that manifests is households don't know what to do. And it's a lot easier to believe everything is fine. Yesterday, things were fine. Tomorrow, I think things are going to be fine. So why do I want to spend money or why do I want my government to be spending money on this thing that I don't really understand instead of on things that do make a tangible difference in my life right now, like better schools or you know, better roads. So I think as a society, we're not doing a great job at really addressing climate change and taking it seriously. And we have to, right? We have to get the policies and the regulations in place that stop incentivizing polluting fossil fuel power. And we have to give clean energy technologies a fair shot in that marketplace. And we can solve all this. It's really solvable is a frustrating thing, but we've got to get the policies right. That being said, I think there's a lot of hope because on the private sector side, companies are seeing, you know, they're seeing the writing on the wall and we've got a lot of really innovative solutions that are coming into place that are just there that are ready to be plugged in. Clean energy gets more and more affordable every quarter. Things like energy storage becoming a really important, critical part of the Texas energy grid in a place where we have a very conservative government. You know, the pieces are starting to come into place on the technology side. And so I know we can solve it and I know someday we will solve it. The question for me is how much suffering happens between now and then. Because the longer we take to deal with climate change, the more severe weather we're going to have, the more natural disaster events, the more drought, the more hunger, the more flooding, more and more households and families and individuals around the world will suffer. You're saying exactly what I'm afraid of, and that is that it's going to take very, very bad, bad events to actually encourage us to move forward together. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, we've already had those very, very, very bad events. Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico five years ago, when they were just slammed by Hurricane Fiona again this week, we've got 100-year flooding happening all throughout kind of the Mideast, what I call the Mideast of the country. And you know, now the Midwest up in Detroit happening every couple of years. Texas, super winter storm. Uri that hit us about a year and a half ago. And we're still in the process of having conversations around what does a resilient grid even mean in this state? We're having these extreme events that are costing trillions of dollars and hundreds of thousands of lives around the world. And the policy rhetoric isn't really changing. So that's where I get stuck is I don't know what it is going to take at this point, except companies and the private sector really continuing to move in the direction of knowing what the future will be at some point and getting us there. And the Biden administration has 
I believe, gotten a huge win with the Inflation Reduction Act and the funding that's going to go into getting these solutions that are ready, just getting them out into the marketplace. Even if another president comes in a year and a half from now and reverses course, I think that we're going to have that inflation of capital and the policies that for a time put us on the right track, that that is going to get us over a hump. I hope you're right. Me too. How do you think the pandemic impacted what you're talking about now, our ability to change in time? I think it showed that it's possible. You know, I think it gave a lot of of individuals, but also a lot of governments and a lot of governing bodies faith that it's possible. And now we have an example we can point to about, yes, this is going to cost money. Yes, this is going to be a focus for a little bit. But at the end of the day, we do it and we solve the problem and then life can go on. We're not stuck in a cycle of suffering that nobody's addressing because we all feel paralyzed by it. So I think the pandemic, even though it's terrible that we've gone through this and a lot of people have died and suffered, you know, it reminds us that we can act globally pretty quickly on big issues and we can solve them. We might still have the pandemic. However, it's not like it was when we were afraid to go outside and hospitals were literally full and they couldn't take more patients. We got past that by leveraging science and by caring about each other and spending the money that we needed to spend to solve it. Yep, exactly. Yeah, we got over the crisis point. That's a great way of putting it. Do you have any advice that you can share with people about how they could help mitigate climate change? I think there are two things for me personally. The first is vote, because I don't think I can emphasize this strongly enough. The solutions are there. It's the policy that's missing. And policy should be the easy, the easy one to get right at this point. So vote. That's, I think, the most critical thing for solving climate change right now. Vote in your local races and your state races and at, you know, international races. The second one is that I think personal investments do matter. And I don't know if this is just in my bubble of climate change researchers <laughs> over the past couple of years, but there's been this kind of debate about how much should we be focusing on encouraging individuals and households to make different purchasing decisions versus focusing on these big systems changes that can only happen through you know, government action or large corporate action. And I think both are critical. The residential sector is responsible for about 40% of our carbon emissions in this country. That's from personal transportation and homes. So we can't say that that's not important. And if you care about climate change, you have alternatives now to get a great electric convection oven instead of a gas one, to get an electric car for your next car, you know, to make those decisions and to not feel like those are huge sacrifices anymore, but to believe in the technology and to believe that it's going to be fine. And that actually, yes, that makes a very big difference. A couple of months ago, I interviewed the CEO of Finch. She has a tool that automatically when you're on Amazon shopping, shows you the carbon impact of the different items that you're searching for and compares them. I thought that was pretty cool. And I've been using it to help guide what I buy. Yeah, that's huge. Yes. Those are the kinds of things that we need now to help bring some transparency around this. You know, it's that carbon nutrition label that people have been trying to do forever now, I think at this point, but the data has been missing for it. And yeah, it is just making those decisions more transparent so we can make the right ones. Yeah, this is an extension for Chrome. So once you install it, it'll evaluate your products for you. Oh, wow. What's it called again? Finch. Finch. Like the bird. How awesome. I'm going to install that. Thanks. 
Do you have any questions for me? Well, I am curious now that you talked about Finch, you know, what are, what are the solutions that you wish everyone was aware of and using? And also I'm curious with your history of working, you know, on the utility side, but also on the private sector side with startups and interviewing all of these incredible smart people trying to work in climate change. What do you think the solution is or what advice do you give to people? Well, as you said, getting the policy right is critical. We're not going to get anywhere without that. And so voting, I do agree, is number one. But I think people should try to take some personal accountability. And I don't mean that you can't live your life, but investing in solar, investing in a hybrid or an electric vehicle, just taking little steps that you can take when you can take them, I think is important. Crazy people like me and you might do more, but doing what you can. Someone recently said, don't worry about turning off your lights because they're LED lights, but not everybody has LED lights. I don't think you have to replace your lights. You have to. So small things should definitely be done. Do you have anything else you want to add? You know, if there are initiatives in your community, if you get a flyer from a researcher, if a company wants to test something with you, please do it. I know it's kind of a pain, but that's also how, how you get involved in the solution. And there's a lot of people trying to work and solve climate change and to do it in a way that isn't punitive. I think that's the difference between how we're approaching climate change now versus like in the Jimmy Carter era of just get used to being a little bit cold or get used to being a little bit hot. We don't have to do that. We have a lot of technology advancements that I think mean we can solve climate change in a way that eases suffering instead of causes discomfort, but it kind of takes everybody being involved in that to make it happen. I do want to hear more from you, though. I'm curious. I have so many questions for you. How do you feel about the next 20 to 30 years? And like, what do you think it's going to take to make a really big difference? I said it before, and that is I'm fearful that it's going to take very devastating events. And you said we're already having them, and I agree with you. And that unfortunately shows us they have to be more devastating, as bad as they've been. I don't think it's enough to shake people to decide that it is number one and that our focus has to be on sustainability, on climate change mitigation, on doing whatever it takes. And I agree with you. I don't think that we need to be cold or hot. I think the systems have to change and the systems can change. I recently spoke to Andrew Beebe, who talked about how for the internet, everything changed. Nothing is how it was pre-internet. Mm. Climate change mitigation has to be even bigger than the internet. Every industry has to change. And people can't accept the status quo when it comes to polluting, creating greenhouse gases. It's something we just have to focus on. Yeah. But I'm concerned about what it's going to take to get us there. Yeah. Yep. How much we'll lose in the meantime. Interesting. Yeah, I think we're on the journey. Hopefully we just make it happen sooner. <sighs> it sounds like that's what we're both concerned about, the speed. Yeah, yeah. And how, how you change hearts and minds. But I think it is just voting because our leaders have a big megaphone. All right. On that note, <laughs> I'm going to wrap this up with... 
a wrap. You were inspired by wild places. You were concerned that climate change will ruin natural green spaces. The planet we live on, it doesn't have immunity. And that's why you rely on working with community. Climate change is going to be bad for everybody, and that's why you thought you ought to do something about it, but especially your daughter. You notice that you need to understand gaps in information, and that is the way to accelerate innovation. Your success in New York made you say, see you later, because in Texas with Pecan Street, you could get more data. When you look at it, you think, oh my God, how bad this mess is. But Pecan Street uses data so it doesn't have to take guesses. It's important that you find the right hammer for the nail. That's why you're quick to success and you're quick to fail. During the pandemic you got with your neighbors, you did cry and laugh and you realized how great your volunteers are and your staff. The weather, we should all notice that it's totally rearranging. We only wish that just as fast our policy would be changing. You stressed how important it was with your final note that we have to get together on policy and that means vote. If we're gonna change hearts and minds, we're gonna need a plan. Thank you for pointing that out. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Oh my God, that's the best thing ever. I understand the point people make when they say data is too complicated to convince people to take action mitigating climate change. But Suzanne gave us a great explanation about how data gives us the information to successfully innovate solutions. You can dig a lot of holes looking for treasure, but knowing where to look will win out every time. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Elections are coming up in just a little over a month. As Suzanne reminded us, the solutions are there. It's the policy that's missing. The policy should be easy to get right. We just have to vote climate, local, state, and national. Our leaders have a big megaphone and we need them to change hearts and minds and help to mitigate climate change. Mm -hmm.